0: How very much I've loved you! How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. He said. Jesus himself said, "The Son of God." In this law, he said, of all the law and all the prophets. Childish manner, Scott and I impishly danced around his body before he was dead. Just. Strangely enough, it was a rush. A teenager's rush. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Yeah! Hey, strangers, welcome to another episode of Strange Talk Podcast. And this episode is going to be a part two to what I've already done because... As you know, on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, I had you guys, the listeners, vote on what the next topic was going to be for the new episode. And you guys all chose to have another episode, particularly pertaining, because if this was like a festival, a music festival, like say Coachella or Lollapalooza, blah, 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 whatever that shit's called, it would be, she would be the headliner. And you guys chose to hear the story about Luis Porton. Okay, so she's going to be the headliner, so she's going to be the last one spoken in this episode, but this one is all about killer mothers, or mothers who have killed, and a lot of them suffer from diminished mental states or postpartum psychosis. That tends to be the norm with these types of cases. I'm not trying to make anything light of it, but I will say this, okay, (laughs) how to touch this delicate subject, shall we? Well, I will say this. Um, It is not your fault. Um, You know, your mental state is not your fault. Okay. Just know that it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to deal with it. It is your responsibility to seek help And it is not your fault that you have it, or it's not your fault that you dealt with whatever trauma you dealt with that attributed to your diminished state or to your mental health, but it is your responsibility to seek help and do something about it, you know, because you can't, nobody can, in all honesty, okay, I know it's something that you don't want to hear maybe, I know it's something that not a lot of people like to talk about, but in all honesty, it's nobody else's problem but yours and yours alone. But you have to be the one to go and get the help and seek the help. Nobody can really take you. People can tell you, maybe push you in that little spot. And of course, you can have your support and everything. But in the, in the long run, it really is just up to you. Because if you don't want to go get the help, you're just going to still be the same. You know, whatever reasons you have that are preventing you, now is the time to just, you know, say, hey, you know what? I don't like the way I feel. If you don't want to take pills, there's alternatives. There's cannabis. I suffered from depression. I still have my belts with depression, but I do use alternative means of um, of. <laughs> I fucking smoke weed. Is what I'm saying. I I don't smoke it as much as I used to because I was, I felt like I I didn't have. I mean, I don't think I had a problem, but I just spent a lot of money <laughs> on because I would fucking dab, and dabbing is kind of expensive. But um, yeah. So. As I was saying, you know, mental health is not your fault, but it is your responsibility to seek the help that you need and, you know, just get, you know, get the help because, you know, people want you here. People want you here. People don't want you to do harm to them. You don't want to do harm to others. You know, you don't, but people care about you just as much. People care about you, even though you don't think that they do they do they care about you so having got all that stuff out of the way let's get to the actual meat of this episode and why you're here to begin with we're going to start off this with the first case her name is dana latner schulzer i don't know if i said her last name right but I believe that's what she She was born in 1969, and she was a woman from Texas. Now, the interesting thing about her case is the reason why it wasn't – well, I guess you can say it was a mental psychosis, but um, what attributed to her um, diminished state would be the fact that she was a very religious person. So in her early years, at the age of eight, Dina Latner was diagnosed with hydrocephalus. Hydrocephalus is a condition in which accumulation of the cerebral spinal fluid occurs within the brain. This typically causes increased pressure inside the skull. Older people may have headaches, double vision, poor balance, urinary inconsistency, uh, personality changes, or mental impairment okay that's what hydrocephalus is. She had eight surgeries to implant shunts into her brain heart into her brain, heart, and abdomen. I said brain heart. <laughs> before she was 13 years old. Okay. that She had that much surgery before she was even 13 years of age. That's pretty extreme to experience at a young age. It's obviously going to be traumatic. Her schoolmates made fun of her shaved head, which obviously school sucks. And it's one of my biggest fears for my child because she's going to get bullied or if she does get bullied, but who knows she could be the bully. You never know. But I just hope that I'm going off topic. It doesn't even matter. You guys don't fucking care. She graduated from Morris College in Poughkeepsie, New York. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. With a bachelor's degree in psychology. Ironic, I know. She met her husband, John, when they were both students at Morris. She graduated from Morris, but he did not. He was actually a dropout. Eventually, they moved to Texas where he would not allow her to work because he believed, as they were a religious couple, he believed that a woman should be in the home and just be A maid, essentially. The day after Margaret was born, Schultz attempted suicide and was hospitalized in a psychiatric ward and diagnosed with bipolar disorder with psychotic features. She had been investigated earlier that year by the Texas Child Protective Services after she was hospitalized for a psychotic episode. Child Protective Services ordered that she could not be alone with her children. Her sister-in-law came to live with them until CPS lifted that order. She came to believe that Margaret, her daughter, was destined to marry Doyle Davidson, a veterinarian who had become their pastor. The day before she attacked Margaret, Solskjaer told her husband that she wanted to give her to Davidson. Later that day, according to a confidential CPS report, he spanked her with a wooden spoon in front of their children. She She fatally injured Margaret, while her other two daughters were not harmed. Psychologist David Self testified that Schultzer told him about a disturbing news story she had seen. The news story concerned a boy who was mauled by a lion, and she interpreted it as a sign of the coming apocalypse. She said that she heard God commanding her to remove Margaret's arms and then her own. The attack was later described as a religious frenzy. Self determined that she suffered from self determined that she suffered. From postpartum psychosis, which was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was committed to the North Texas State Hospital in order to stay there until she is deemed to no longer be a threat to herself or others. There, she was actually a roommate of Andrea Yates. Now, if you don't know who Andrea Yates is, you probably want to go and listen to part one of Mothers Who've Killed because Andrea Yates is featured in that episode. So I talk about her case. And she was a Texas woman who had drowned her five children in a bathtub. Now, if you're not sure what Dana Lautner Schulzer did even to her daughter, was this. So on November 22nd, 2004, Dana Lautner used a knife to amputate the arms of her 11-month-old daughter, Margaret, who died as a result of the wounds. Okay, that's what she did. This is why she's on trial. This is what she did, because the other information didn't necessarily state this. During the trial, much attention was drawn to Solskjaer and her husband attending Water of Life Church, a charismatic church church, pastored by Davidson. She had been taking antipsychotic drugs for several years prior to Margaret's death. Davidson thought that mental illness was demonic, and this belief partly led to Solskjaer's husband to not buy her medication regularly. Under oath, Davidson testified that in his view, all mental illness is demonic at bottom. Due to viewer outcry after the trial, Davidson's television ministry was canceled everywhere outside the Metroplex. After Schultzler's Schultz, Why can I not say her name right? <laughs> after arrest, her children were taken by Child Protective Services and kept in foster care. Scholzler's husband underwent a psychological evaluation where he was diagnosed with narcissistic personality traits. The psychological report also stated that he did not do enough to protect his daughters from his mentally ill wife. Child Protective Services said they would only allow him to regain custody of them under the condition that his sister live with the family, and he was required to complete psychotherapy and parenting classes. He obliged and got them back in his home. He subsequently filed for divorce as part of the divorce settlement. Solcher was prohibited from ever having contact with him or their daughters again. On November six, two thousand eight, it was announced that Schulzer, God, why can't I not say that? It sounds like I'm speaking like like fucking uh, what's his name Sean Connery. Scholzer, would shortly be released into outpatient care. The order required her to see a psychiatrist once a week, take medication, be on physician-approved birth control, and not have any unsupervised contact with children. In April of 2010, it was reported that Schulzer was recommitted after firefighters from Richardson saw her walking down the street at 2 a.m. Her attorney, David Hines, said that he felt the judge made the correct decision. Schulzer was later released to outpatient status. She stayed out of the public eye until 2012 when WFAA-TV in Dallas reported that she was working under her maiden name, Latner, at a Walmart in Terrell. Within hours, they fired her. So, unfortunately, I mean, you commit that type of shit. You just can't catch a break, honey. So, that is our first case. And, it. I mean, obviously, I don't fucking know because I've never wanted to hurt my child. But I can't imagine just being in that moment. You have to be, well, obviously, you have to be. You have to be in a severely mental diminished state. For you to even want to choose to hurt your child in such a horrific way by amputating the arms. Um, but that's what she believed. She believed she was doing it because it was a test of faith that she had to. Even though that her, I mean, I don't think the preacher would have wanted an armless child. But she was, she because that, that's what she felt was that her pastor, Davidson, I forgot his first name. Uh, she believed that her daughter was meant for him, that she was born to be married to him. And take my daughter's hand. Oh, I got the vapors. But moving on to the next case that I have for you, we're going to start with... Well, start with... We're going to fucking continue with this little-known case. And her name is Frances Elaine McLemore Newton. Okay. Let's see. McLemore was convicted of executing... Her son, I'm sorry, yeah, her son, her daughter, and her husband back in 1987. Okay, all three victims were shot with a 25 caliber pistol, which belonged to a man that Newton had at the time been seeing. Newton claimed that an illegal drug trade drug dealer killed the three. The Houston police presented evidence that Newton's husband was indeed a drug dealer and was in debt to his supplier. Newton maintained her innocence from the first interrogation in 1987 and up until her execution in 2005. So, spoiler warning: she was executed by lethal injection three weeks before the slayings. Newton had purchased life insurance policies on her husband, her daughter, and herself. These were each worth fifty thousand dollars. She named herself as a beneficiary on her husband's and daughter's policies, and. Uh, Newton claimed she forged her husband's signature to prevent him from discovering that money had been set aside to even pay the premiums. Prosecutors cited these facts as a basis for her murder, for the mur- murder and her motive. During the trial, Newton was also found to have placed a paper bag containing the murder weapon in a relative's home shortly after the murders. On October 25, 1988, Newton was convicted of the murders and sentenced to death, and spent nearly 18 years on death row before finally being executed by lethal injection on September 14, 2005. Two hours before her first scheduled execution on December 1, 2004, Texas Governor Rick Perry granted a 120-day reprieve to allow more time to test forensic evidence in the case. There was also conflicting reports as to whether a second gun was recovered from the scene. Ballistic reports appear to demonstrate that a gun recovered by law enforcement and allegedly connected to Newton after the offense was the murder weapon. A relative of Newton who was incarcerated shortly after the murders claimed a person he shared a cell with boasted of killing the family. Numerous individuals, including three members of the convicting jury, expressed concern over evidence that she was present during the trial. Well, sorry, expressed concern over evidence that was not presented during the trial. On August 24, 2005, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals turned down a motion for a state of execution. It turned down another appeal on September 9th for writ of habeas corpus. It was her fourth application. The Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles voted 7-0 to zero on September 12th not to recommend that her sentence be commuted to life imprisonment, despite evidence raising doubt about her guilt and a letter for her husband's parents asking that her life be spared. The same day, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. So, if you don't, if you're not understanding what I'm saying right here, because there's a lot of like law mumbo jumbo and stuff going on, uh, she claims her innocence that she did not actually kill her family. And if I'm not mistaken, there is a documentary about it. I don't remember the name of it, and I apologize for that. I know I'm terrible, but I forget names a lot. And obviously, if you can't tell by listening to my other episodes, I'm really fucking shitty at pronouncing names. But she claims her innocence, and she's always claimed her innocence, that she had nothing to do with the murders of her own family, and she claims that she loves her family. She never wanted to wish any harm on them. That it was simply just her drug supplier, her husband's drug supplier, which she admitted that he was a drug dealer, that it was the main, I guess, the boss, drug dealer, boss guy, I guess. I really don't know the fucking rankings of, like, drug dealer, but the supplier... Was the one that set her up. He framed her for the murders. And um, there's a lot of people who do believe that she was innocent. And her own husband's family believed that she was innocent too. And what you didn't hear, they wrote a letter to the court, to the judge, saying that please grant her lenience and just give her life imprisonment because she did not, she does not deserve to die because she is not the one that committed the murders. But again, this is Texas, okay? And I'm not talking bad about Texas if you're from Texas. I'm just saying, Texas still has that kind of, in certain places in Texas, they still kind of have those um, old ways, if you know what I mean, when it comes to African Americans, okay? They look at them like, you come wrong town, boy. Although Texans don't really sound like that. more like South. But anyways, the same day the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit refused an appeal of her sentence. Her new attorney, David Dow, asked Governor Perry for a 30-day stay to prove that Newton was wrongly linked to the murder weapon. The Supreme Court of the United States declined without dissent two appeals on September 13th. The execution was carried out as scheduled on September 14th, 2005, by lethal injection. Frances Newton spent a little more than 17 and a half years on death row before her execution and was the third woman... (laughs) I said third woman... Third woman executed in Texas since the resumption of capital punishment in the state in 1982. The first and second were Carla Faye Tucker and Betty Lou Beats. I don't know why I kind of like that name, Betty Lou Beats. Like Beats, before her, Newton made no final statement and did not have a last meal request. Wow, so she went out like a G. She's like, I'm not going to eat your food because that just proves I'm guilty. I don't know, I imagine that's what she thought in her head. Over 30 protesters from the Texas Death Penalty Abolition Movement, the National Black United Front, and the New Black Panther Party have gathered outside the prison. In addition, about 75 people protested the execution outside the governor's mansion in Austin. According to the results of Public Information Act requested submitted by Texas Moratorium Network to the Office of Governor Rick Perry, 12,201 people contacted the governor asking him to stop Noon's execution and 10 people contacted him in support of her execution. Okay, see the difference? Only 10 people contacted, her, contacted the governor, Rick Perry, of Texas at the time. Only 10 people in support, in favor of her to be executed. Well, a hugely marginally difference of 12,201 people contacted governor asking him to stop the execution but yet they still went forward with it. During the investigation of Francis Newton, the forensic crime lab in the Houston Police Department was also experiencing intense criticism for the handling of the evidence. Michael R. Bromwich, a former U.S. Justice Department official, said the Houston Police Department and city officials failed to provide the crime lab with adequate resources to meet growing demands for at least 15 years before their exposure of problems in its DNA division. Noon's story was featured in the Fatal Attraction episode, A Lethal Love. It is the 17th episode of the program's third season. It has also been featured on Deadly Women. She is also featured in Women on Death Row, where her guilt is put into question and her innocence was discussed before she was eventually executed. So that's an interesting case. Um, So if you don't really know about capital punishment, and, you know, of course, we always have debates about that. California does not have um, capital punishment, I believe. It does not execute its prisoners, although there is still debate about it if we should bring it back. Um, Some people, yes, I do believe that uh, deserve to not be on this earth anymore. Um, For instance, people who say trigger. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) for instance, um, like child molesters, things like that, I believe, actually, you know, I think child molesters should just be um, castrated, Uh, but I mean, not just their balls be castrated, I'm talking about, uh, they should be chemically castrated, but they should also uh, lose the ability to uh, even have a penis, is what I I think, Uh, they should not, and and they just go about their life that way, I feel like that should be their punishment, it it may be barbaric, but I feel like that's the only solution. so modern modern problems require modern solutions, but uh, lethal injection. For those of you that don't know, um, there's an interesting episode from way back in the day of a great show that I used to love watching, and it was called *Penn and Teller: Bullshit*. And they actually tackled the subject of capital punishment. They tackled the subject about is lethal injection a sort of because when lethal injection first came about, we only had the only alternative we had was um, firing squads which we stopped doing because people were there was a huge outcry saying that was completely barbaric and unnecessary you know although i feel like in some ways it's a lot better than an electric chair because electric chair oh god that's a fucking bad one um i've never experienced it but i wouldn't want to because obviously you die that's the end result but um there the electric chair if you want to hear a lot about the electric chair You should check out the podcast, Last Podcast on the Left. I'm pretty sure most of you that listen to my podcast know about Last Podcast on the Left. So go and check out, if you haven't heard the episode, they do an amazing episode that's chock full of information and little itty bitty goodness all about the electric chair, how it was created, why it was created, and everything. Um, but it is kind of a mean way, but lethal injection was introduced as an alternative to the electric chair. They believed, uh, the person who invented it, I don't remember who came up with the chemical solution and everything, but that guy said that it was a more humane way of dealing with killing death row inmates. But recently on the show Penn and Teller bullshit, they did a test of the chemicals that were introduced in the lethal injections and they found out that although it is simply technically a more humane way what it actually does okay they, they obviously can't say for a fact because the only way to actually test it is to actually test it on a human subject or animals but they didn't want to do that what they did find out though is that some of these chemicals all they simply do is just render the person paralyzed they still feel all the pain but they're simply just paralyzed so much so that they cannot move But and they cannot scream. But the chemical is simply just rendering you under paralysis. You cannot move, you cannot scream, but you feel every amount and excruciating pain that's coursing through your veins of that chemical. So it was a pretty interesting episode. If you're able to watch it, I know Hulu, <laughs> I'm not sponsored by Hulu, but I can't stop talking about Hulu because I enjoy Hulu so much. Um, but Hulu has uh, the Showtime? If you're able to just get Showtime, I know you can get it through Prime, uh, Amazon Prime Video. Um, but I believe they should have it up there where you can watch the episodes because that's where it was actually first aired. Was in Showtime. Um, Showtime has Penn and Teller bullshit. You can watch the episode about capital punishment and just watch that episode. Just watch the whole show to begin with. It's actually really fun and informative. I, I, I used to love watching that show. So, let's move on to another case. Shall we? So this next one is of Susan Lee Vaughn Smith. She was born September 26, 1971, and is an American convict who was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after serving 30 years for murdering her two children, three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alexander. The case gained international attention because of Smith's false claim that a black American man had kidnapped her sons during a carjacking. Her defense attorneys, David Bruck and Judy Clark, called expert witnesses to testify that she suffered from mental health issues that impaired her judgment when she committed the crimes. According to the South Carolina Department of Corrections, Smith will be eligible for parole on November 4th, 2024. So it's actually kind of approaching. We're already in 2019. After serving a minimum of 30 years, she is incarcerated at the Leith Correctional Institution near Greenwood, South Carolina. Susan Smith rarely had a stable home life growing up. Her father committed suicide when she was only six years old. That fucking sucks. <laughs> um, and Smith herself attempted suicide at age 13. So obviously she was suffering from a huge amount of trauma already. She, just, she was just dealt a fucking bad card in life. Her mother then married Beverly Russell a member of the local chapter of the Christian Coalition who later was revealed to have molested Smith when she was simply a teenager. One newspaper claimed that sexual relations between them had continued until six months before the murders. After graduating from high school in 1989, Smith made a second attempt to end her own life after a married man ended the affair they had together. She married David Smith and then had two sons, the relationship was rocky due to mutual allegations of infidelity, and they separated several times. So they were basically fucking around on both of the, on each other, and they would argue about it, which is weird. Why not just have a fucking open relationship? But I don't know. I guess some people just want their cake, and you may eat it too, I guess. On October 25th of 1994, Smith reported to police that her vehicle had been carjacked by a black man who drove away with their sons still inside the vehicle. For nine days, she made dramatic pleas on national television for the rescue and return. However, following an intensive investigation and a nationwide search, she confessed on November 3rd of 1994 to letting her car roll into nearby John D. Long Lake, drowning them inside the vehicle. Her motivation was reportedly to be able to have a relationship with a local wealthy man, even though he had no intention of forming a family with her. She said that there was no motive, nor did she plan the murders, stating that she was just not in the right state of mind. Later, investigation revealed that detectives doubted Smith's story from the start and believed that she murdered her sons. By the second day of the investigation, the police suspected that she knew their location and hoped that they were still alive. Investigators started to search the nearby lakes and ponds, including John D. Long Lake, where their bodies eventually were found. Initial water searches did not locate the car because the police believed it would be within 30 feet of the shore and did not search farther. It turned out to be actually 120 feet from the shore. After the boys had been missing for two days, Smith and her estranged husband, David, were subjected to a polygraph test. The biggest breakthrough of the case was her description of the carjacking location. She had claimed that at a traffic light, I'm sorry, she had claimed that a traffic light had turned red, causing her to stop at an otherwise empty intersection. However, it was determined that the light would not have turned red for her unless a vehicle was present at the intersecting road. This conflicted with her statement that she did not see any other cars there when the carjacking took place. Smith's defense psychiatrist diagnosed her with dependent personality disorder and major depression. Incarceration of Smith. I'm sorry. Smith was incarcerated in the administration administrative. <laughs> oh my god, Smith was incarcerated in the administrative segregation unit in the Camille Griffin Graham Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. I completely had a brain fart, and I maybe I have dyslexia. I don't know. Dyslexia, dyslexia. What the fuck? Dyslexia. <laughs> in 2003, she placed a personal ad on WriteAPrisoner.com, which later was retracted. Dude, writeaprisoner.com. That's where you can go to write prisoners. I kind of, to be honest with you, I know I'm going off topic with this, but I kind of want to write to like maybe somebody just to just to just to have like a correspondence and see if I can like get anything from them. I know it's super fucking selfish, but um. anyways, let's get back to the case. During Smith's incarceration at the Camille Griffin Graham Correctional Institution, two correctional officers, Lieutenant Houston Cagle and Captain Alfred R. Rowe Jr. were charged... After having sex with her. nass. Nice. Consequently, she was moved to the Lee Correctional Institution in Greenwood. So she's still getting it in. Good for her. Good for her. Just don't have children. <laughs> good for her. Good Good. Good. Good for her. <laughs> so that is all about Susan Smith. So if you want to see a, a movie loosely based around that case of Susan Smith's case, there's a movie starring uh, Julie Moore, I believe. Julianne Moore? What is her name? Julie Moore? I want to say it's Julie Moore. Um, She's that white lady with the freckles. She's kind of like a ginger-looking lady. Um, She stars in it, uh, and it stars also uh, Samuel L. Jackson. And, of course, he screams in the movie, which is always awesome. That's like a staple thing he does. Um, But, yeah, that is a movie loosely based around that case. Um, When I say loosely, it's super loosely because it does have a message about it. Um, Because at the time of of when she claimed that a black man had – uh, carjacked truck carjacked that's not even a word carjacked her and uh took her children that were in the vehicle as well people were up in arms about it um of course this was in the early 90s so um i mean even today still i mean we're not fresh like the scars of racism and you know slavery and all that stuff haven't really healed properly so you know at that time people were still very upset and you know shit was going down in african-american neighborhoods predominantly in the urban areas and low-income housing so uh police were searching and searching and they were not stopping especially because it was a white lady you know that's just the way it goes which is very sad but let's move on to the case oh and i totally forgot to say the name of the movie but that movie is called freedom land so if you want to see an interesting uh, take on this case loosely based on it remind you it's loosely based so it's more for a dramatic entertaining tale but um it's a pretty good movie it was a good movie pretty good message in it uh, but check it out it's called freedom land and surprisingly enough the movie's more about samuel jackson and not necessarily about susan smith's character that's played by julie moore so let's move on to the next freaking case So this next case is of Diane Stout, okay? Diane Stout, I believe is how you say her name. In 2012, 62-year-old Mark Stout resided with his wife, Diane, and their four children in a modest neighborhood in Springfield, Missouri. The couple admit years ago at a small Lutheran college in Kansas. While active in the church, Diane and Mark kept to themselves. A man with strong political opinions who regularly wrote letters to the editor Mr. Stout had never been very good at holding down a steady job. He eventually stopped trying and devoted most of his time to family matters and playing in a band he had formed called Messing With Destiny. Mark Stout's 51-year-old wife, Diane, played the organ at church and, unlike her husband, never had much to say. The couple's oldest child, 26-year-old Sean, suffered from a mild form of autism. Sarah Stout, 24, was having a hard time finding a good job. Well, Rachel Stoud, two years younger than Sarah, was a Dean's List student at Missouri State University, at least according to her Facebook page. She played the flute at church, and the youngest member of the family was an 11-year-old girl. On April 8, 2012, Easter Sunday, Mark Stoud died suddenly at home. To the emergency personnel who rushed to the house, Diane explained that her husband hadn't been feeling well. He had recently experienced three seizures. When asked if her husband had a history of this kind of thing, she said he had not suffered seizures in the past. The Greene County medical examiner, Dr. Douglas Anderson, without conducting an autopsy or ordering toxology tests, ruled Mark Stoud's manner of death as natural. The forensic pathologist did not identify specifically what had caused this man to die, though. Pursuant to Diane Stoud's instructions, her husband's body was cremated. At his memorial service, friends and family couldn't help but noticing that Diane's demeanor bordered on jubilant. On September 2nd, 2012, almost five months after Mark Stoud's sudden and mysterious passing, tragedy once again raised its ugly head at the Stoud's house. This time, it was Diane's oldest child, Sean, who became ill and suddenly died at the age of 26. Once again, Dr. Douglas Anderson, without the aid of an autopsy or toxology test, Ruled the death as natural. The medical examiner did not, however, identify the disease that had taken the young man's life. Diane made sure that Sean's body, like his father's, was consumed by fire. For a woman who, within a period of five months, had lost her husband and her oldest child, Diane seemed unfazed by the unexpected deaths. Indeed, her spirit seemed to have been lifted, though. On the day after Sean's passing, the Springfield police received an anonymous tip from a man who said he was a friend of the Stoud family. According to the caller, Mark and Sean Stoud had been poisoned to death by Diane. The police, however, did not act on this tip. According to the medical examiner, both men had died natural deaths. Without finding of homicide, there was nothing to investigate. Sarah Stoud fell ill on June 10th of 2013, and paramedics came to the house and rushed her to a nearby hospital. The next day, as the 24-year-old fought for her life, the Springfield police received a second anonymous tip in which the caller accused Diane Stout of poisoning a third member of her family. This time, the Springfield police sent a detective to the hospital to question doctors and nurses. According to the hospital personnel who were caring for the young woman, her mother had visited the patient briefly during which time she joked around with the medical staff. One of the nurses informed the detective that Diane Stout told hospital personnel that she wasn't going to let her daughter's illness ruin a Florida vacation she planned to take in the near future. A physician described Sarah's condition as very suspicious. The doctor told the investigator that in his opinion, this patient had been poisoned. On June 20th of 2013, After being asked to appear at the Springfield Police Department for questioning, Diane Stoud, following a short interrogation, confessed to poisoning all three members of her family. Over a period of days before the deaths of her husband and son, she had spiked their drinks with the sweet taste of antifreeze. Diane had poisoned her husband's Gatorade simply because she hated him. She had laced Sean's Coke with the poison because she considered him worse than a pest. Diane told her interrogators that she had poisoned her oldest daughter, Sarah, because the girl would not get a job and had, a, and had student loans that had to be paid. Diane insisted that in murdering Mark and Sean and attempting to kill Sarah, she had acted alone. When detectives questioned Rachel Stoud, the 22-year-old college student, she admitted that she had helped her mother commit the crimes. The two of them had used the internet to research how to administer antifreeze as a poisoning agent. On June 21st, 2013, a Greed County Assistant Prosecutor charged Diane and Rachel Stout, each with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of first-degree assault. The judge denied both women bail. According to doctors, while Sarah Stout survived her, her poisoning, she would suffer the neurological effects of the antifreeze for the rest of her life. The 11-year-old Stout girl was living with relatives with her father and brother dead, her mother and one of her sisters charged with murder and assault, and the other sister uh, permanently disabled, the girl's family no longer existed. Such is the power of poison. In May of 2015, Rachel Stoud pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and one count of first-degree assault. She agreed to testify against her mother in the event her case went to trial. The judge sentenced the 25-year-old to two life prison terms plus 20 years under the terms of this sentence. She wouldn't be eligible for she wouldn't be eligible for parole until she served 42 years. On January 20th, of 2016, Diane Stoud pleaded guilty to one count of first degree murder in the death of her husband and one count of first degree assault in the poisoning of her daughter, Sarah. Pursuant to the plea deal, she avoided the death penalty but was sentenced to spend the rest of her life behind bars. In May of 2016, ABC News acquired videotapes of the police interrogation of Diane Stoud and her daughter Rachel. As part of her confession, the mother said this I am not a perpetual killer. I'm just stupid. I regret doing it. I really do. I screwed up everybody, I've screwed up my whole family. (laughs) You think? (laughs) The sad part is, is that not only did she ruin her family, she ruined the life of her daughter that was actually kind of doing pretty well. She was in college and according to her Facebook page was on the Dean's list. She would have had a bright future ahead of herself, but because of, for some reason, this family, I mean, this family, this mother, Diane Stout just couldn't live with the larks that I guess she felt her husband and her son and her other daughter were. And it's sad, but I guess greed, because in a way it is kind of greedy. I mean, it sucks, yes, that these people are, I mean, it's just fucked up in general that she felt that these people were like, just like this rock on chain to her leg that she couldn't, you know, break away from. And instead of just leaving them, because it seems, that seems to be harder than just killing them. I don't know. It just sucks. She ruined her family. Sorry, I'm not even, She ruined her family. <laughs> she ruined her fucking family. And that's sad. So, let's move on to another case. So, this one is of... This, this case is an interesting case. And it's of uh, a woman named Megan Huntsman. So if you're not sure of who she is. A uh, part of this, uh, the, a good majority of this, is taken from a news article. Um, I believe the news article is it was it was written for KSL.com. I believe so. It starts like this: The six newborn babies each lived less than two minutes before their mother, Megan Huntsman, lost in a haze of desperation and addiction, pressed her thumbs to their throats and choked them. She remembered using a hair tie. One time, to be sure, Pleasant Grove Police Detective Dan Beckstorm testified at Megan Huntsman's sentencing hearing on Monday. Why, prosecutors asked. Her response was to be sure it was dead. Huntsman, 40, pleaded guilty in February to six counts of murder, a first-degree felony. She was sentenced Monday to six terms of five years to life in prison for murdering the babies between 1996 and 2006, then packaging their bodies and hiding them in her garage for years to come. That is the strange part about this fucking case. It's where it takes a really sick, twisted turn. Okay? Because after killing these babies, six of these newborn babies, for some reason she would keep the dead bodies in shoeboxes and keep them in her garage. 4th District Judge Darrell McDade ordered three of those terms to be served consecutively and three to be served concurrently. I don't think she'll ever be released, Utah County Attorney Jeff (laughs) Budman said following the sentencing. My guess is that she'll serve the rest of her life. Joyce Huntsman describes her daughter as tiny, an image that held true as the small brunette woman shuffled into the courtroom Monday, her hands and feet shackled. Her quiet daughter always kept to herself, never wanting to ask for help, rarely sharing personal details of her life with anyone. Joyce Huntsman told McDade she grew even more secretive after she got pregnant in high school and moved out at age 18 to marry Darian West. She never found the strength to stand up for herself, Joyce Huntsman said, describing a young woman she called the Megan Huntsman of yesterday. Though shy and secretive qualities can't explain away, but likely contributed to Megan Huntsman's shocking crime. Offense attorney Anthony Howell said she suffered from chronic depression and a rocky marriage and was scared to reach out for help. I think it's fair to say she had a rough go of adult life, Howell said. Megan Huntsman declined to speak Monday, but in a statement read by her attorney, she acknowledged the power that the addictions held over her. Police say Megan Huntsman, a mother of three children who were still living, was addicted to drugs at the times of the other births and couldn't afford to keep the babies and still have her methamphetamine after she kicked her meth habit. She told the judge in the statement, I moved on to alcohol. Depression and alcohol took hold of me the same way drugs did, she said. I cannot give a reasonable answer as why I was capable of such a sick and heinous crime. I held my secret for 18 years. It was an unusual move, but prosecutors called Beckstorm to testify during the hearing because they said the full story had never come out. We did want to make sure that the judge understood everything that we dealt with. Beckstorm said after the hearing, to be able to give him a synopsis of everything we did to understand what Megan chose to do, we wanted the judge to understand that before he made his decision. Family members had been helping Wes clean out the garage at his Pleasant Grove home on 536 East, 200 North, so that he could move out of a halfway house following his time in prison. Beckstrom testified. The couple's youngest living daughter had opened the first box, discovering what appeared to be a dead baby in a bag. West, who investigators determined was the father of all six children and a seventh that was stillborn, insisted he was never aware his wife had been pregnant with those seven children. As police reached, um, I'm sorry. As police searched the garage, Megan Huntsman was being interviewed by police. Initially, she insisted that the baby in the bag had been stillborn, delivered shortly after her husband went to prison. She hid the body, she said, because she didn't know what else to do. But about an hour into the interview, police at the scene reported that a second baby had been found. Beckstrom said, the detective described how each body was found as officers opened boxes inside of boxes, wrapped in layers of plastic or blankets, sometimes taped shut with electrical tape. In all, investigators eventually determined that the bodies of five baby girls and two baby boys had been hidden for years. It's been horrible for our department. Some of the things officers saw in that garage, they can never unsee, Beckstorm said. Huntsman eventually admitted that she had murdered all but one. Haunted by demons and addictions, she believed she couldn't be a good mother to the children, she wrote in her statement. And she said, in some small way, I wanted to help them avoid the terrible life I would have given them, she said. I deprive my little babies of the opportunity of life. Huntsman attorney said Monday that while his client wasn't initially forthcoming, she eventually gave a full confession. Without her cooperation, attorneys on both sides noted prosecutors wouldn't have had a case against her. She unburdened herself of 18 years of guilt, Howell said. As Megan Huntsman explained her story to police, detectives asked her why she had let her three oldest children live. Her first two children were born before she and her husband started using meth, according to Beckstorm. She was on drugs, however, when she became pregnant with her third living daughter. She was not murdered because the pregnancy was known to other people, Beckstorm said. After that, he said... Huntsman was careful to never disclose her pregnancies. Two of Huntsman's daughters submitted letters on their mother's behalf, describing her as a loving parent who had done a good job caring for them rather than a cold killer as some see her. Nobody could guess my mom would do anything like this, they wrote. No matter what anyone thinks you are, you are a good person. Megan Huntsman's youngest sister, Jamie Huntsman, wept as she read the letters, then went on to give her own statement. Her sister had always been loving, but timid and shy. Megan is not a monster, Jamie Huntsman said. She's not evil. From what I understand, she was scared. Family members said that they didn't know about the methamphetamine that ruled the couple's lives. Joyce Huntsman urged other parents to watch for the signs of addictions in their children. Despite her family's testimony, prosecutors insisted that There was no way to deny that Megan Huntsman had carefully plotted to kill each of the six children without any of her family noticing, cleaning up all the evidence before they could see. There were very cold and calculated killings, Bowman said. She smothered or strangled six of her own flesh and blood. As he handed down the sentence, McDade explained that he was the judge who signed the search warrant on the day the babies were found. At that time, he had quietly hoped he wouldn't have to be the one to assign the troubling case. I really thought I had seen it all until this case, McDade said. It shocked me then, and it shocks me now. That's very strange. So, I mean, again, this is, a, this is a case that wasn't due to, I guess in a way, it can be due to a mental psychosis. But it's not one that you see of, like, maybe postpartum depression or one of, like, a, just a diminished mental Capacity diminished state of mental health. It is simply because she was being controlled by drugs, and she felt that maybe it was a bit of both. Because she did say that I I I chose to end their lives because I I knew that I couldn't be a good mother. I believe that's partly true, and the other part of it. So it's fifty percent that she felt like she'd be a terrible mother because she knew that she was a drug addict. Okay, she knew that she was a drug addict and that she was going to be a terrible mother to these children who would need her care and because when you have a newborn baby you fucking need to be there for them 24 7 and and it's not an easy thing to do um but so she felt like you know i'll just save them the excruciating and probably the the childhood trauma that they would endure and eventually grow up to be people that suffer themselves from mental health issues And she decided to end their lives. And then the other 50%, I believe it was just simply she just decided to get rid of a fucking necessity of just because she wanted to spend her money on drugs. Because when you have a newborn baby, all the money just goes to that baby. And she felt like there was no way she would be able to afford her drug habit plus take care of the baby. So I believe it was a 50-50 type of thing. And it's sad, but... That's just what she chose to do. And I think the most horrific thing about it was the fact that she just, why I don't know why she wouldn't bury them. She just decided to keep the bodies inside of a shoebox in her garage. And the thing that troubles me is that wouldn't the wouldn't there be a smell? Because I, I imagine these babies would be decomposing at some point, unless she wrapped them so much in layers of bags that the smell couldn't escape. Because there was a case, um, it, It's not similar at all to this, but there was a case of this boy who was in love with this girl. I know I'm going completely off topic, but I'll get to my point. But long story short, he was in love with this girl. Uh, He pretended to be somebody else, said that he was rich, said that he was like this tennis star player. And uh, he killed them his parents because they forbid him to see her because he was constantly spending their money. He was, he was using their credit card to spend money so he could buy her all these lavish things. And just, they could just live this lavish lifestyle that he supposedly said that he could give her. And, um, because they try to stop him, he ended up murdering them and they went on vacation. He went on vacation with the girl after he murdered them, but he didn't do anything with the bodies. He didn't bury them. He didn't do anything. And I'm actually thinking about doing an episode of this case. Um, because it's pretty, pretty crazy. Um, But after he left, they left for weeks and the bodies were just there in the home, just decomposing. And they had decomposed so far along that neighbors started complaining of a horrible smell emitting from the home. This happened in the UK. And it was so bad that there was just a bunch of flies collecting over the windows because they just wanted to get inside to that sweet, sweet dead body meat. Um, And so they reported saying like, hey, there's something going on at my next door neighbor's house i don't don't know what the fuck's going on bruh. but you guys need to get over here like asap bruh. i don't imagine uk people talk like that but yes but no so that's a that's a pretty interesting case of that uh so i think i might i might cover um cases of like people who've killed for love or people who killed for passion passion killers i guess you can say Um, or just children who've killed their parents. I think it's time to move on to that type of of episode. So I may be doing an episode like that in the coming future, in the near future. So let's move on to another case. So this next case that I have for you is of a woman named Susan Eubanks. Okay, her name is Susan Diane Eubanks, to be exact, and she was um. 33 at the time she committed the murder okay so let's get into it on October 26 of 1999 Susan Eubanks of San Marcos California took the lives of her four sons the boys ranging in age from 4 to 14 were all shot in the head execution style she then turned the gun and shot herself in the stomach according to her defense lawyer she shot herself as a result of an attempted suicide and only one other person was in the home at the time of the killings. That was Miss Eubanks' five-year-old nephew, who was found unharmed, fortunately. After spending the day drinking with her boyfriend and taking Valium, they began to fight. Once home, she then slashed two tires on his car and refused to let him in the home. He called the police, and they then escorted him to the home, where he removed some belongings and left. According to her defense team, this was the catalyst of the killings. They claimed that it was then that she lost control of her mind and body. After warning one of the boys' fathers as to her diminished mental state, the boyfriend told the father that she talked about killing herself and the boys. The father then called the police department. He asked the sheriff's department to check on the children. When the deputies arrived at the home, they heard sobbing, and inside found three older boys dead from gunshot wounds to the head. The youngest was not yet dead, so an ambulance was called to the scene. The four year old boy was still was still rushed by the ambulance to the hospital, where he would later die. They then found the fifth child, her nephew, unharmed. They also found Susan sobbing and suffering from a self inflicted gunshot wound. She herself was also sent to the hospital. After five days, Miss Eubanks was charged with four counts of first degree murder. The trial began in August of 1999, and the prosecuting attorneys alleged that Susan Eubanks had killed her sons as a result of rage. The rage was a result of anger felt toward their fathers and the boyfriend, whom had all chosen to leave her. It was claimed that she felt the desire to seek revenge for the failure of the relationships, that she wanted the fathers to also know the pain of losing those that had been loved. The defense lawyers claimed that the murders took place as a result of blacking out, that as a result of a diminished state of mind, she was not in control of her actions. It was claimed that after spending the day drinking and using prescription drugs, along with past heartaches and current domestic disturbance, that she then became a robot and did what she thought would remove her pain. During the trial, it was noted that there had been allegations of child abuse and talk of revenge prior to the murders taking place. Prosecutors claimed that she was not suffering from a blackout state. You can't see me because this is a podcast, but I'm using quotation marks. (laughs) Because she had to load her weapon twice before she had finished, thus giving her ample time to realize what she was doing and stop. It was also noted that while she had killed her sons, execution style, she had only shot herself in the stomach too. It was noted that she surely would know how to kill herself after murdering four others. Prosecuting attorneys believe that she had shot herself to increase her chances of a lesser charge or possibly to frame someone else for the murders so in other words, she just shot herself in the stomach, which is actually a really painful place to be shot at because you can die very slowly from that unless it hits like a vital like artery you know, but for the most part, you usually die really slow for that um, you just bleed out and it takes a really long time, and it's excruciating pain. I'd never been shot in the stomach but I just know because I've done a bunch of research about it. Um, But they they were saying that she probably just did that just to either fake that somebody else had committed the murders or she probably did that because if you're going to kill yourself, the most likely person who knows that when they want to kill themselves, they're just going to shoot themselves in the head. They're not going to waste the time shooting them somewhere else or anything. You either shoot yourself in the head or in the back of the head. You place the gun right behind your ear. How do I know that? Because you go back and listen to my episode about r robert bud dwyer or um, christine Chubbick, that is where i learned that bit of information i probably shouldn't have said that because well just go and listen to that episode <laughs> um in august of 1999 after just two hours of deliberation the jury found her guilty on all four counts of first-degree murder just after two days they returned with the sentence of death. The judge agreed with the sentence in October of 99, and she was then transferred to the Central California's woman facility, where she now, to this day, still remains on death row. And that's unfortunate. But, so, now we move on to the last case, and this one is the one that you guys voted on. There's really not a lot of information about her that much as it just recently happened. I believe it happened like last week, I want to say. I- I'm not too sure. But um, so I couldn't really find that much about it. But there's mainly just news articles about it. But... Everything that I have found is just collected in this little thing that I have. So we will read. majority of it comes from a news article by Brimming Hamill, um, UK, which is obviously this took place in the UK. So this is all I got a good majority chunk of the information from this. But here we go for the headliner, Louise Porton, <laughs> a Midland mom or mum, is accused of murdering her two daughters three weeks apart because. OK, are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? The reason why she killed her two daughters was because they got in the way of her X-rated lifestyle. A jury was told Louise Porton, 22, allegedly suffocated Lexi Draper, 3, and then killed 17-month-old Scarlett Vaughn some 18 days later. One friend allegedly said the part-time model from Rugby Warwickshire would do whatever she could to not have her daughters with her. She met a string of men on dating sites and sent them explicit photos of herself in the lead-up to their deaths, jurors were told. In text messages, she also offered to meet for sex if they put money into her bank account to fund her shopping, it is claimed. Birmingham Crown Court heard claims she sent topless snaps of herself from the hospital toilets while Lexi was being treated by medics. She also swapped more than 80 messages with the hospital guard after meeting him in the A&E department, prosecutors said. Jurors were told Porton made a series of internet searches relating to children's death the day before the first alleged murder. It is claimed they included how long does it take a body to go cold and five weird things that happen when you die. Oliver Saxby, QC, prosecuting Told the court doctors could find no natural reason why both girls died. He said the overwhelming oh I'm sorry. He said the overwhelming inference in Lexi and Scarlet died because someone deliberately interfered with her breathing. At times her two children got in the way of her doing what she wanted, when she wanted and with whom she wanted. Jurors were told she was unemotional and detached immediately following Lexi's death on January 15th of last year. She also went through a charade of trying to wake Scarlett on February first, even though she was dead, it is claimed. The court heard Porton, who was separated from the girls, first took Lexi to the hospital on January 2nd, claiming she had suffered a seizure. She was examined by doctors, but no cause could be found for the fit and she was allowed home the next day. But less than 24 hours later, Porton rang 999 saying her eldest daughter had stopped breathing, jurists were told. Mr. Saxby said she was rushed to the hospital and later diagnosed with a chest infection before being discharged four days later. He added, Finally, a week later in the early hours of January 15th, the defendant made another 999 call. Again, Lexi had stopped breathing. This time, when the emergency services attended, they found Lexi dead. Indeed, it was clear that she had been dead for some time. Mr. Saxby said paramedics who went to her home in rugby works noted she was unnaturally detached. He said Porton's reaction was not as one would expect of an innocent mother coming to terms with so shocking a bereavement. Jurors were told she rang 111 on February 1st, 18 days later, from a retail park saying she could not wake her other daughter, Scarlett. Mr. Saxby said the defendant was in her car. Scarlet was with her. They were alone. She told the operator she was en route to the hospital to have her checked out. She said Scarlett was asleep and she was concerned. Their operator asked the defendant to see if she could wake her. She went through the process. You may well conclude this was something of a charade, of seeing if she could wake Scarlet but she could not because Scarlett was already dead. It was clear to the emergency service when they attended shortly afterwards that Scarlett had been dead for some time. Jurors were told a social worker saw Scarlett looking chatty, alert, and happy hours before she died. Porton broke down in tears in the dock as recordings of her 111 and 999 calls were played in court as the trial continues. So I... So this obviously happened last year in January when the murders took place. But the trial, I guess, happened fairly recently. It happened not too long ago. Wow, there's even another news article that says that uh, Louise Portn put her children's clothes up for sale. Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm going to read this one. So bundled into black bin bags and dumped outside, killer mom Louise Porton flogs her dead daughter's clothes after murdering them. Porton suffocated Lexi Draper, three, in January last year and killed 17-month-old daughter Vaughn 18 days later after they got in the way of her sex life. Just months later in June, the 23-year-old advertised the clothes bundles on local Facebook sales sites for 20 euros a sack. The pitcher, uh, I'm sorry, twenty pounds a sack. The pitcher company, the post showed two large black sacks overflowing with Lexi and Scarlet's clothes they had outgrown, including baby grows, a pink and white striped top, and blue and purple spotted dress, dressing gown, all of various ages for sale for twenty pounds. She offered to deliver them to buyers and later dropped the price to fifteen pounds a bag. The so Facebook post was unearthed as Porton was jailed for life and will serve a minimum of a minimum sentence of 32 years. Sentencing Porton, Judge Justice Amanda Yip said he, she had squeezed the life out of your daughters. He said the truth is both children died because you deliberately obstructed their airways. Text messages and internet... <laughs> it's supposed to be text messages, but that's obviously a typo. Text messages and internet searches done on your mobile phone reveal a degree of premeditation. I am sure you were responsible for the events that led to Lexi's admission to the hospital. Your internet searching was sinister. You delayed calling for an ambulance until you were sure she was dead. The murder of any child by a mother involves a process of abuse of trust. They ought to have relied on their mother to look after them. It is not a case of a young mother doing something in the heat of the moment. The evidence shows calculated decisions. In between the deaths, you carried on as normal. She added, "One way or another, you squeezed the life out of your daughters. Why did, why you did so? Only you know. Your actions have devastated so many lives. After killing Lexi and Scarlett, Shameless Porton paid tribute to them on Facebook. She posted two pictures of her children in November last year, nine months after she killed her angels." She wrote, Mommy's Angel's taken from me too soon. You will never be forgotten. R.I.P. Porton added several emojis at the end of the tribute, including a heart and padlock. She made the post eight months after she was arrested on suspicion of murdering her children. Eight days after her arrest in March last year, she definitely made another post. She definitely made another post with the hashtag smile and fuck the haters with a picture of her touching her tummy and another photo of Lexi and Scarlett. Porton had denied killing Lexi and Scarlett, but was found guilty by unanimous jury decision at Birmingham Crown Court yesterday after a five-week trial. Porton blinked as the verdicts were read out and then sat in the court dock, one hand over her eyes, and head bowed. Jurors heard Porton had accepted 41 friend requests on a dating app just a day after the first child Lexi died. and was described by prosecutors as being calm and emotionless following Scarlett's death. And text messages, she also offered to meet for sex if they put money in her bank account to fund her shopping. I already read that, yes, I know, but this is from another news article that's giving all the information too. and I felt like they gave a little bit more information. When Lexi was ill in hospital just over a week before she died, Porton took topless photos in the bathroom toilets at the hospital and was arranging to perform sex acts for money with a man she had met through a website. The 23-year-old suffocated Lexi in the early hours of January 15 last year and was then heard laughing at a funeral parlor two days before killing Scarlett just over two weeks later on February 1st. Prosecutors said it had appeared to the funeral arranger present that Porn was using FaceTime and that she was speaking to a man. Jurors were told that after police seized her phone, they uncovered searches including how long it took a dead body to go cold up to the shoulder, and five weird things that happen when you die. Opening the Crown's case at the start of the trial, prosecutor Oliver Saxby QC said the overwhelming inference is that Lexi and Scarlett died because someone deliberately interfered with their breathing. I've already read most of that, so um, there's a bit of information on this one. Let's see. Prosecutor said that while in the hospital with her sick daughter, porn took toilet went to the toilets and took top of his photos. It was in the days after Lexi was discharged on January 4th. The prosecution alleged that mother, alleged the mother looked online for, can you actually die if you have a blocked nose and cover your mouth with tape? Porton also searched how long after drowning can someone be resuscitated and accessed an article called toddler brought back to life after nearly drowning. Jurors heard. Jesus. So she just had a really high sex drive and just could not live with her children because they got in the way of it. And that's really sad. What a fucking bitch, but Hey, at least she's going to get all the sex she can in prison. So, you know, hopefully that helps her. <laughs> so I hope this was a better episode for you. I feel like this is not going to be that great of an episode, but I try to get all the information I could find for Louise Porton. But as I said, it happened last year and the trial just began this year. I believe and she was sentenced to 32 years in prison in the UK. On the only reason why she wanted to do this was just so she could just live. Because she is fairly young for having children. Um, I mean, it's not super young. I mean, you are an adult. You know what you're doing. She got pregnant on purpose. Maybe they were illegitimate children. I don't know. Because they never really spoke about the father being in the life. So who knows? But... Unfortunately, she just felt they were getting in the way of her sexy time and they had to go. (laughs) And it's sad. Two little girls lost the chance at living a fulfilled life because the mom was just too fucking horny and just had to get that coochie slapped. (laughs) But so thank you for listening to this episode of Strange Talk Podcast. It's probably a little bit of a short one, but oh, well, you know, the next episode Okay, it's going to be an interesting one. But next week is going to be another This Week in Crime. And if you're not sure what This Week in Crime is, for the new listeners, welcome to Strange Talk Podcast. But in This Week in Crime is basically where I bring you strange, weird, or fucked up news from around the world or right here in good old America. And that's my slogan, and I'm sticking to it. So be prepared for that one. That's going to be next Wednesday that you're going to hear another This Week in Crime. But the week after that, is going to be another episode of strange talk podcast and that episode is going to be because thank you for the idea because for some reason it's kind of a it's kind of weird that she no nah, i'm just kidding but um i'm assuming she listens to me i imagine she does i hope she does <laughs> but shy uh she knows who she is on instagram she reached out to me and said hey um you've ever thought about doing this episode for an episode and I was like hey that would actually be a pretty good idea because I saw an interesting documentary way back when before I even started doing a podcast about true crime but it was an interesting documentary called Snuff the history of snuff films or something like that but that's what that episode is going to be about it's going to be about if there is an existence of snuff films and not really so I'm going to be getting Any information that I can find, um, I'm going to be using a lot from that documentary. And the documentary, again, is called Snuff, the History of Killing in Films, I believe it's called, or the History of Killing. Uh, But a snuff film is essentially a film that is made to look like a movie or a scene from a movie. And the person or persons in the film, in the scene, are not knowing that they are going to die. And that's and it's it's simply made just for the to just have the viewing pleasure of seeing somebody murdered and sold for profit. That's what a snuff film is. And there is a particular case that I'm going to be including in the episode about two Russian boys who tried to create their own snuff films. And it is a very sick and fucked up, twisted thing that they did to this poor person and animals. Um, also, they can try to just get money for creating snuff films um faces of death will probably be included in that because in some way or form it is um considered snuff but it's not meant for the entertainment of simply just watching people die in a way it is because you are watching people die although most of it is fake there are some scenes of uh, faces of death i'm already giving it away i shouldn't even have said that oh well now you know but be prepared for that episode it's going to be called Snuff. And uh, that episode is going to be all about like the existence of snuff films, and just talking about anything I can find related to the subject about snuff films. So, if you're not already, follow me on strange, talk, follow me on Instagram at strange talk podcast, so you can keep up to date on what I'll be working on. And I also started a new series exclusively to Instagram, um, where I just find strange or weird videos and I just upload them to my profile. And you can watch them, discuss them with me, or just comment, like them, whatever you want to do. Repost them if you would like. But I find interesting videos that I find on YouTube or the internet. And just, you get to watch for your own pleasure. The recent one I just uploaded was one about um, this deaf guy who um, has his great-grandmother's coffin in his backyard. And the reason why he has it in his backyard is because the cemetery that she was buried in um closed down due to just poor maintenance and i guess complaints and it was just i guess the city finally just closed it down because they said you know that's it you're not doing anything with it let's get the fuck out of here and instead of uh relocating her to a- another cemetery he said it was more expensive to actually rebury her find the plot and then rebury her and everything it was just too expensive he couldn't afford it so he just thought well i'll just keep her in my backyard and he shows the coffin <clears throat> in the backyard, and when it rains, he just covers it with a blue tarp, the same you would if you were to put it on a vehicle. And he opens it up, and you can see her body. And she's actually pretty well-preserved, but it's, it's just strange to see that because it's not often um, us Americans in our tradition. It's We just bury the body, and we never see it again, and that's it. Um, other, other fucking cultures, uh, they stay with the body after they... They, it dies they just to preserve it very well enough and they some some cultures even keep the bodies in the home like on the table where they eat dinner because they still honor the dead in such a way like that there's one on this show on netflix called dark Tourist. i don't know if you ever heard of that show it's a really good show so i i advise you to check it out it's basically about this guy the host he goes around to different um countries and and places in the world that have weird, dark tourist um, attractions—something for the person who's like morbid or just strange and likes oddities and things like that. Um, and he goes to this one, I believe it's in the Philippines, where he sees um, a ritual uh, burial. Uh, how they, you know, how they do their funerals, and they actually keep the body in the room where the person died. And you can—they just go there and they pay respects. And then they slaughter a pig. Uh, they sacrifice the pig essentially in a way of honoring their dead, um, and then, and I know in Mexico, uh, I want to say it's Nicaragua maybe I think in Nicaragua they take out for like not Día de los Muertos but for a certain I think it might be Día de los Muertos they bury their dead in shrouds they wrap it in shrouds almost like a mummy kind of in a way but they wrap them in shrouds and then they put them inside um, a sarcophagus. No, like a mausoleum, I think I believe is the word, and they put them in there. And then one day out of the year, which I believe is the those Muertos, they take them out and they have dinner with them and they like dance with them, <laughs> carrying them up in the air. So it is a very it's it's strange for people who are not accustomed to that type of way of their culture. But yeah, so uh, that's the video that I have on the new series that I'm starting on Instagram, which is Strange Talk TV. So if you haven't go ahead and check it out. If you haven't followed me yet. Follow me at Strange Talk Podcast. Um, if you want to send me stuff to be featured in, if you want to send me news articles to be featured in This Week in Crime, you can do so via Instagram. Just send me a DM at Strange Talk Podcast, or you can email me at Strange Talk Podcast at Outlook.com. What's that email again? It's podcast at outlook.com. And I'll be more than happy to feature them. Or if you want to just give me an idea for an episode or a particular murder case or serial killer that you want me to discuss, you can do that too. Because it would really help me out to find different cases that are not really known. So some more obscure cases or obscure serial killers would be pretty interesting to find. So look forward to another episode of Strange Talk Podcast after This Week in Crime, which is going to be next Wednesday. Um, It's going to be a snuff one, so be prepared for that one. It's going to be an interesting one, I hope, at least. So, if you can't support me with money, with cash money, the best thing you can do is, if you haven't already, if you're listening to me on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I guess, please rate and subscribe there. Rate me what you feel I actually deserve. I don't care. Just rate me, because... The more you rate the more it gets me noticed the more it gets me up there especially when people are searching for podcasts that is the most and biggest help that you can do for me another big thing you can do for me if you can't support the podcast by way of donating or giving money or whatever is simply by just supporting the show by you know introducing the strange talk podcast to people that helps me out a ton just getting you know it into different people's ears and just introducing them so if for instance you have a friend that's never heard of strange talk podcast you would be like hey bro check out strange talk podcast he sounds pretty cool man he sounds kind of like weird and he's a bit cringy but he's pretty cool man if you listen to him after a while he's kind of funny he has his moments but for the most part check out his 9 one calls man this shit's a fucking sick bro that shit's lit shit's lit af so that's what these young kids say today But thank you again for listening to this episode of Strange Talk Podcast because without you, the listener, Strange Talk Podcast would not be what it is today. So again, thank you for listening. As always, stay strange.